0: Today's scripture is Exodus chapter 4, verses 18 to 26. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife, and his sons, and had them ride on a donkey, and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart, so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision.
1: Let me pray for us before we get started. Gracious, gentle, powerful God, we praise you for you are worthy of praise. And we ask now that in your grace you would be with us open our eyes to see wondrous things in your word and to be with the kids downstairs that we as one church continue to praise you and behold your glory. In your name we pray, amen. Well, good morning. My name is Sam. I'm one of the team here and it's so good to open up God's word as we continue our sermon series in the book of Exodus. Today's passage is about setting the stage for the big showdown to come. The next 10 chapters are going to be about a big showdown between God and Pharaoh. God is going to go head to head against Pharaoh and all the gods of Egypt to rescue the Israelites from slavery. That's what's to come. So, but before we get there, we need to set the stage for the showdown, which is what today's passage is about. Today's passage gives us three things we need to set the stage for the showdown. Three things it teaches us about God's grace, God's power, and God's covenant people. God's grace, God's power, and God's covenant people. So to our first point, God's grace. Let's spend some time retracing Moses' steps to remind ourselves of how we got to this point in the story. Moses ran away from Egypt because he was wanted for murder. But then years later, in the middle of the wilderness, God appears to Moses. God reveals his name to Moses and he reveals his plan for Moses. God plans to use Moses as a mediator, as a go-between, to rescue the Israelites from slavery. But what does Moses, how does Moses respond? Moses tries to refuse, doesn't he? That's all he went through last week. Look at 4 verse 1. Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. Moses tries to refuse God, but God's response is gracious and patient. God addresses Moses' reservations by promising to do miraculous signs in front of the Israelites. So then what does Moses do? Moses still tries to refuse God. 4 verse 10, But Moses said to the Lord, "Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. This time, God's response is firmer, but he's still gracious and patient. He says he will be with Moses' mouth and he will teach Moses what he has to say. So, how does Moses respond? Moses still tries to refuse. His roundabout refusals have not worked, so now he tries the direct approach. Verse 13. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. And finally, God's anger is kindled by Moses' repeated outright disobedience. But amazingly, God is still patient, and gracious with Moses. Rather than just telling Moses, do what I say or else, which I personally think would have been a very reasonable response, what does God do? God accommodates Moses' fears by saying that Moses' brother, Aaron, can speak on Moses' behalf. And that's not all. God then then gives Moses a special staff as the ultimate assurance of God's presence with Moses. Which brings us to where, to our point in the passage where we are today. After trying to reject God so many times, now Moses is trying to obey God. After trying to reject God so many times, now Moses is trying to obey God. He, Moses goes back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and he prepares to obey God by going back to Egypt, just as God instructed. Look at verse 18. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, "'Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive.' And Jethro, Jethro said to Moses, "'Go in peace.' And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, "'Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are, seeking, who are seeking your life are dead.' So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand a few things we need to notice in these verses firstly notice how moses is really trying to obey god he makes plans to go back to egypt just as god told him he even takes his wife and his children with him because he's committed to staying the course he's not planning for a short getaway he's planning to be gone indefinitely and he brings his staff of god with him just as God told him to, Moses is really trying to obey God. But we also need to notice something else here in the text. Question marks about how Moses tries to obey God. Look again at how Moses explains to his father-in-law his reasons for, one, reasons for wanting to go back to Egypt verse 18. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, "'Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt,' To see whether they are still alive. You read what Moses says and you go, huh. Moses isn't quite telling the whole story, is he? Moses has left out a few key details that we've seen in the verses before. Moses doesn't talk about how God appeared to him, he doesn't talk about exactly what God wants him to do in sending him back to Egypt. We wonder, was Moses afraid to tell his father-in-law the whole story? We don't want to assume Moses' motives, but it does leave us with question marks, doesn't it? The question marks come up again a few verses later in verses 24 to 26. We'll get into the details later. But the point is that Moses hasn't circumcised his son, even though God has commanded all sons be circumcised. Moses is really trying to obey God, but the picture here is like a baby who is trying to take his first steps. I remember when my children were babies and, and they were learning to take their first steps. You know, they push themselves up onto their feet and then they put their arms out and they sort of like stagger forward, unsteady and unsure. And, and you're right there in front of them to encourage them and, and, to, and, and to support them and to catch them when they fall because they are going to fall. And that's what's going on here. Moses is taking his first unsteady steps at trying to obey God. He's unsteady. He's unsure, and he's definitely going to fall over, over, and over again. And yet, what does God do? God is right there in front of him to catch him, to encourage him, to gently help him back up again as he learns to walk in, dis- in obedience. Even as God was gracious and patient with, jo- with, with Moses when he tried to disobey God, God is still gracious and patient with Moses now as he tries to do what is right. Look at verse 19. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. Scholars write a lot about this verse because what's so striking about verse 19 is how unnecessary it is, if you think about it. God has already told Moses to go back to Egypt and Moses has already agreed to go back to Egypt. So verse 19 is completely unnecessary. It shouldn't matter whether the men seeking Moses' life were dead. If God tells you to do something, you trust him and you do it. And Moses has already agreed to do it. But this is why verse 19 is so beautiful. As Moses takes his first unsteady steps of obedience, perhaps verse 19 is God gently addressing the fears deep in Moses' heart. As God understands how difficult it was for Moses to go back to Egypt. The very reason that Moses ran away from Egypt all those years ago was because men were seeking his life. He has spent all those years on the run, perhaps haunted by his past and looking over his shoulder. And as he prepares to go back to Egypt, the scene of his fall from grace, God now graciously reassures him that the men seeking his life are dead. Verse 19 is not necessary. But that's what grace does, doesn't it? Verse 19 isn't necessary, but God is gracious. Grace is showing kindness and understanding, even though it isn't necessary even though it isn't deserved. We we will see it again in verses 24 to 26. Moses has failed to follow God's commands to circumcise his son. And yet, instead of making Moses suffer the consequences, God graciously gives Moses the time and the space to make things right. Christ City, what a wonderful reminder of God's grace for us. What a wonderful assurance, isn't it? When God calls us to obey Him, He is patient with us when we are unsteady and He is gracious with us when we fall short. He knows our fears and He will never put us through more than we can bear. And this is so wonderfully reassuring because so often when we seek to obey God, we we are unsteady, aren't we? (laughs) We are unsure when when we try to do something different, when we try to do something that no one else is doing, when everyone is looking at us funny, we feel unsteady, we feel unsure, and we're going to keep falling short, right? And yet God is gracious, Christ said. We can keep taking that next step of obedience because our God knows us and is gracious to us. So first point, God's grace. Second point, God's power. Look from the second half of verse 20. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand, and the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Now, the idea of God hardening Pharaoh's heart is a big topic that we don't have time to get into today because it needs a fair amount of attention. And so, just to say, we're going to cover it, but not today. Maybe I'll give it to John. (laughs) The focus for today in these verses is Moses' role as God's mediator. Throughout the rest of the book, as as Moses prepares to be God's mediator, God is going to be speaking through Moses, and he's going to be performing signs and miracles through Moses. But even as the stage is being set for the showdown, the passage makes clear to us it is God's power at work, not Moses'. God is the one who is doing all these things through Moses, the mediator. The staff that Moses takes in his hand is no ordinary staff. It's not Moses' staff first and foremost. It is the staff of God. The staff with which God will perform signs and miracles through Moses. Moses can only do what God has put in his power to do. We see in verse 21, you see that you do before Pharaoh and all before Pharaoh all the miracles that what I have put in your power. There is nothing that Moses does that God does not empower him to do. And Moses can only speak with authority that comes from God. That's why he's always so careful to say, Thus says the Lord, it's only God's words that carry authority, not Moses's. Christ City, what are the areas of our lives that we, we, we need to learn to rely on God's power and not our strength? Let me put it another way. What, what are the areas in our lives where we learn that we can rely on God's power and not our strength. God gives us abilities and gifts to do His work, but remember, it is God doing work through us and not us working on our own. Again, isn't that so reassuring? We don't need to worry about controlling everything. We don't need to carry the weight of taking the responsibility for the outcome. Our role is to do what God calls us to do and then to trust God to do what He deems right. One of the causes of stress and anxiety is when we think we have power that we do not have and so try to take control of that which is not ours to take control of. Let me say that again. One of the causes of our stress and anxiety is when we think we have power we do not have. And so we try to take control of that which is not ours to take control of. That's why rest is a spiritual discipline. Rest is a spiritual discipline because it means trusting that God is at work even when I'm not. And it means trusting that God is at work through my work and I am not the one who is taking responsibility for it. God commands us to take time to intentionally rest because it reminds us to trust in God's power over our own abilities. If you want a practical application, is that we can trust God enough to take time to rest from our work and even rest in God while we work. Let me say that again. If you want a practical application, and I know some of you are waiting for this moment, (laughs) is that we can trust God enough to take time to rest from our work and continue to rest in God even as we work. While I was preparing for this sermon, this was very convicting for me. Literally, I I shut the laptop and I took a break. (laughs) Psalm 127 is a really helpful way to anchor, our, uh, anchor ourselves in resting in God. Psalm 127 says this, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labour in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved Sleep. Christ city, are you tired? Are you weary? Are you anxious? Let us rest in God. Let's let's learn to rest in God's power and let's to, let's learn to rest in the authority of God's word. Just like Moses, God calls us to trust not in our own words, but in the authority of His Word. Words that have been recorded for us in Scripture. Psalm 119, 105 says this, Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Christ City, when we do not know what to do, when we do not know where to go, we can trust in God's Word. when we need encouragement or comfort or instruction or even correction, we can trust in God's word. So God's grace, God's power, and thirdly, God's covenant people. Look at verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Okay, let me say off the bat, it is an extremely confusing passage. You are not alone in this. (laughs) But here's the other thing we need to know. It's a really important passage. And when you read it in its context, it actually makes a lot more sense. First, let's look at a couple of verses before, verse 22 to 23. God is giving an instruction, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son son. Let me summarize what's going on here. God is saying that the people of Israel are his firstborn son. And he is warning Pharaoh that if Pharaoh, Pharaoh does not let Israel go, if, Israel, if, if Pharaoh continues to oppress and murder the people of Israel, despite so many warnings and so many chances to turn, God is going to justly judge Pharaoh by killing the firstborns of Egypt firstborn for firstborn. As part of his just judgment, let me say that again, God is going to kill all the firstborns in the land of Egypt, except except those of his covenant people. And how do we know who are part of his covenant people? God's covenant people will be marked out by circumcision. We see this in Genesis 17, verse 10. They were to be marked out by circumcision, and so every male who was not circumcised was to be cut off from God's covenant people because they had broken the covenant. We see this in Genesis 17, verse 14. And with that context, now Exodus 24 to 26 makes much more sense, doesn't it? Because Moses has broken the covenant. Moses has not circumcised his son, and therefore he has disobeyed God. His family have not been marked out as part of God's covenant people. And according to Genesis 17, Moses' family should be cut off from the covenant. This calls into question the safety of Moses' family during the Passover. Because only those marked out as God's covenant people will be protected. And so if Moses' family are not marked out, it is unclear if their firstborn would be protected from death during the Passover. And just as seriously, the lack of circumcision calls into question Moses' legitimacy as the mediator of the covenant people. How could Moses be the mediator of God's covenant people if he has so blatantly disobeyed God's instruction that all sons be circumcised? So when we understand the context, verses 24 to 26 are actually a picture of God's grace. What God is doing is He's making clear the serious consequences of the lack of circumcision so that Moses' son would be circumcised, so that Moses' family would be protected during the Passover, and so that Moses' status as mediator would be legitimized. Let me me show you how how we see this. In verse 24, verse 24 says this, At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him, him being Moses, and sought to put him to death. The precise wording of the text is so important here, so we're we're going to dig in. If God wanted to kill Moses, think about it, he could have done it immediately. He didn't have to seek to kill Moses, he could have just killed him on the spot. But that's not what the text says. The text says that that God sought to put Moses to death. And what's happening here is that God is making clear to Moses the serious consequences of not circumcising his son. But at the same time, because God has not killed Moses immediately, he's graciously giving Moses time and space to make it right. Let me say that again. When the text says that God sought to put Moses to death, He's making clear to Moses the serious consequences of not circumcising his son, but at the same time, he's graciously giving time and space for it to be made right. But that's not all. God, in his grace, gives Moses a wife who catches on to what needs to be done. It should not be lost on us that Moses is not the one who does the circumcision in the end. It's his wife, Zipporah. Once again, it's a woman who saves the day. Even if Moses seems a bit slow to catch on to what's going on, Zipporah quickly does what needs to be done. When Zipporah says to Moses, you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she's talking about how, having been marked by circumcision, now their family is safe. Now their family is marked out as part of God's covenant people. Even though Zipporah herself was not born an Israelite, she's saying now she is part of God's covenant people. God's grace at work, Christy. <laughs> but there's one last detail we need to unpack. Look at verse 25. Then Sepporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. Again, confusing. <laughs> What's going on here? Again, context is so important. In addition to circumcision, There's a second way God's covenant people were to be marked out. During the Passover, when the time had come for God to kill all the firstborns in Egypt, God's covenant people were to be marked out for protection. How were they to be marked out? By touching the doorframe with the blood of a sacrificed Passover lamb. Look at uh, Exodus 12, verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, "'Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans "'and kill the Passover lamb.'" and, and, and touching. Because what's going on in, in, in Exodus 4.25 with the language of blood and touching is that the author is pointing forward to what we've just read in Exodus 12. When the Israelites are going to be marked out for protection by touching the doorframe with blood. And again in Christ City, we see a picture of God's grace by the end of verse 26. Whereas Moses' family were in danger of being cut off, now Moses' family are marked out as part of God's covenant family through circumcision and blood. A few verses on, Aaron kisses Moses as sort of a final embracing Moses and his family back into the covenant people. God, in His grace, makes sure That by verse 26, as we are getting ready for the showdown, Moses' family are marked out as part of his people, legitimizing Moses' status as his mediator and protecting Moses' firstborn. Protecting Moses' firstborn as God is preparing to bring Israel, God's firstborn, out of Egypt. So what does this mean for us today? What does this mean for us today? Thousands of years later, the baby boy Jesus was born. And after he was born, his family runs to Egypt because the king Herod is killing all the baby boys. After the king dies, God calls Jesus' family back out of Egypt. Matthew uh, Matthew 2, verse 14. Matthew 2, verse 14. And Joseph arose, arose and took the child, being Jesus, and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfil what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I call my son. Matthew is pointing back to our Exodus passage, and when we connect the dots, we see actually he's making a really profound point about who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. Jesus is God's true firstborn son, called out of Egypt, but this time, God's firstborn is the one who's going to be put to death. Jesus is God's true firstborn son called out of Egypt, but this time, God's firstborn son is the one who's going to be put to death. And why? God's firstborn son, Jesus, is put to death so he can create in himself a new people of God. A new covenant people of God based on a new covenant by his blood. Jesus is put to death to create in himself a new people of God based on a new covenant by his blood. Matthew 26, 28, Jesus says this. For this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins to create a new covenant people who are marked by his blood. We are marked by His blood when we put our faith in Him. We all deserve death. So Jesus is put to death to give us life. We deserve death. So Jesus came as God's true firstborn Son to be put to death so that we might have life. And the blood of Christ assures us that for all of us who have put our faith in Him, our sins have been forgiven, and we have God's Protection. We have God's protection from death, from the power and consequences of our sin. And Christ City, we need to let that sit for a moment, don't we? Because I think this is a basic truth that many of us overlook. We know it in our heads, but we forget it in our hearts. When we get anxious and fearful, isn't it so often because we've forgotten that we have God's full protection? No matter what is happening, no matter what might happen, all the what-ifs in life, we can be assured we have God's full protection. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil. And we can trust that everything will work out for our good. If you are not put your faith in Jesus, if you are not experienced the life-giving assurance of Jesus' blood, may I invite you to do so today start a conversation, talk to the person you came with, talk to any of our staff, or you can come talk to me. I'm going to be uh, in in the front of the gathering room after the gathering. To be part of Jesus' covenant people means to be marked by His blood through faith and having the life-giving assurance that we do not need to fear death. But to be part of Jesus' covenant people also means that we are not just marked by blood, but we are also marked by circumcision. Not physical circumcision, but spiritual circumcision. Colossians 2 verse 11. Colossians 2 verse 11 says this. In him, him being Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. When we put our faith in Christ, we are marked by a spiritual circumcision, a circumcision of the heart. A circumcision of the heart that sets us apart as God's covenant people. God's Spirit circumcises our hearts to love and serve God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. Spiritual circumcision is not something we can do for ourselves, it's something God does for us. But here's the thing, spiritual circumcision should not be any less obvious than physical circumcision. Let me say that again. Spiritual circumcision should not be any less obvious than physical circumcision. Because to be spiritually circumcised still means to be marked out as different. To be marked out, to live in such a way that we are marked out as God's covenant people, in such a way that everyone around us can see that it's not us doing something, but God doing something in us. Christ, even as we rest in the assurance of God's protection, we need to ask ourselves, are our lives marked by our spiritual circumcision? Do our lives reflect God's Spirit working in us? Assured by the blood of Christ, let's live empowered by God's Spirit. Let's live in such a way that everyone can see God's Spirit working in us, not because we are perfect, but precisely because we are imperfect. That everyone can see God's grace as we take those unsteady, unsure steps of obedience. That everyone would see God's power working in us who have otherwise no power to do what is right. that God may be glorified and that the world may come to know Him. Let's stand as we respond to God's word together.